This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarterbin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select mostly at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 37th episode of The Quarterbin, I'm looking at Micronauts number 8 for Marvel Comics, cover dated August 1979. But first, a little feedback about episode 35, the firearm issue from the Ultraverse line. From Jason Trenner. Greetings, Professor. I have a confession to make. The only time I've ever heard of Firestorm has been when he was Black Knight of the Avengers slash Ultraverse mashup. I definitely haven't seen the video Firearm Issue Zero. Shocked that it isn't on YouTube, to be honest. That said, I really enjoyed the episode. I need to track down the rest of the series and see where the story went. No, Jason, I'm kind of intrigued by that as well. A new feedbacker, Brad Dade wrote in, just listened to your review of Firearm 1. I loved this series back in the day, and yes, the first-person narration continues right until the end of the series. Years after the end of the series, a friend of mine found me a copy of the Firearm Number 0 video-slash-comic. It's actually a two-part story. Part 1 was the video, with Part 2 being the comic. I haven't watched the video again in years, Mainly because I don't have a VCR any longer. Yeah, I think that's pretty much the reason why no one has seen this thing recently. Brad continues, But from what I remember, it is not really good. The production quality was terrible, and the acting was non-existent. The comic part wasn't bad, though. I give them credit for the experiment. Actually, Brad, I'm with you on that. I give them credit for the creativity, but I've yet to hear anything positive about that issue number zero video thing. Podcasting's Michael Bradley interpreted the episode as a call to arms to look for the video online. I spent about 30 minutes digging through the interwebs to find the video in the name of historical research, of course. You have to appreciate the man's dedication, if nothing else. He reported that he had no luck. I did, however, find an amazing slice of 90s awesome which was an Ultraverse TV commercial, which was just, just, I I can't describe it. Luke Van Horn complimented Shag for picking a good issue, adding that Firearm was his favorite Ultraverse comic. I actually own the Firearm film. I got it a few years ago through Amazon Marketplace for only five bucks. I suspect the reason that no one has ever bothered to digitize the film and make it available online is that it is absolute garbage. The acting, directing, makeup, effects, etc. are all garbage. It's literally one of the worst films I've ever seen. They must have filmed it on a budget of pocket change. I was shocked at how bad it was since, like I said, I really enjoyed the comic series. He then comments on the Ultraverse commercials that I mentioned previously. They are taken from the Firearm VHS cassette, actually. I don't believe they ever aired on TV. I could be wrong about that. 
and they were made a few years before online commercials were being produced. So that does kind of make sense, that it was simply an ad for the comics that was part of that VHS. Terry Colucci commented on the commercials as well, voicing what we were all thinking. Those commercials are awful! Yes, Terry, they are. The irredeemable one himself also commented on the topic, theorizing why we couldn't find the movie online. I think the lack of digitization is actually due to low production count and the low number of VCRs still around. I don't remember number zero being garbage, but it perhaps wasn't as great as, say, silk stockings from the same era. Uh, yeah. Shag's description of the movie as, quote, not garbage, unquote, is actually the most positive comment I could find about the movie. David Gutierrez opined on Facebook that I need to watch Firearm Zero, Clockwork Orange style. Well, for now, I think I'll pass on that offer, but thanks for thinking of me. Now, if you think that all the Ultraverse talk we've been doing over here is just not enough scratching of your Ultraverse itch, I should mention the soon-coming Ultraverse Podcast Network, which, by the time you hear this, will probably be the brand-new, just-begun Ultraverse Podcast Network. At this point, they're planning, I think, three shows on the network, one with Shag and David Gutierrez talking about general Ultraverse topics, and one with Ben Avery covering his favorite comic book title of all time, Nightman, and maybe one or two others. And if they had an audio promo, hint, hint, fellas, I'd play it right here. But missing that, let's just move on to our issue for the episode. Micronauts number eight had a cover price of 40 cents, meaning I acquired this comic at an okay enough 38% discount. The cover by Michael Golden shows our little heroes cowering in the bottom one quarter of the page with a huge, dark, evil-looking Baron Karza over them. But he is turned away to look behind him, and from behind we see a sky-blue and white-clad figure bursting through an atomic symbol, and underneath him is the only verbiage on the cover. Enter Captain Universe, who I've never heard of, but there's an exclamation point, so I know he's important. I'm not saying it's Michael Golden's best work ever, but there's a nice minimalism about the design, especially in the era from which it came. The inclusion of just the one three-word caption box is different, and that's an attention grabber. The story, Earth Wars, was written and drawn by Bill Mantlo and Michael Golden, with embellishments by Bob McCloud. The issue itself starts with a great battle scene. NASA tanks and armed uniformed military personnel, which I personally didn't know NASA had, are fighting off something off the page. Young Steve Coffin has burst into the combat zone. You gotta listen, Colonel Macy. I know who's launched this attack on Cape Canaveral. Like the cover? That is an attention-getting first page. The colonel doesn't believe that Steve knows the assassin who's erupted out of the Human Engineering Life Laboratories, H-E-L-L, wink wink, until the microns pop out of a nearby ship 
and then he recognizes Steve. You're Ray Coffin's boy, aren't you? All right, son, I'm listening. Then we get the first of many flashbacks in this issue. There, there's a bit of a clip show feel about this issue at times. Steve tells the colonel and us that after the Micronauts and Karza landed in his backyard, Steve went to NASA, but his father and Professor Prometheus fell into the Prometheus pit, along with Karza, and that at the end of last issue, Baron Karza was able to make it all the way out of the pit using Prometheus's body at human size. To conquer Earth! And we have another full page of battle, with Karza shooting energy from his hands at the NASA men, while his robots battle on as well. Here on this world, I am invincible! One of the military men agrees. At best, the humans are fighting a holding action. One man, and a core of drone robots, is bringing NASA to its knees. Only the Microns can fight Karza, and Commander Rand leaps into action against the armored villain, supported by the Endeavor, Mari, and Acroyer. Back in the Microverse, on Homeworld, Prince Argon and super-hot underground leader Slug join the rebel forces hidden in a religious sanctuary. We learn some background information again with a bit more flashback. Years ago, a time traveler appeared to Argon's father and foretold that although the royal family would fall, it would rise again. A shadow priest explains to all that his order, apparently faithful to Baron Karza, has secretly labored to create a network of rebellion against him. Their goal is to welcome the foretold champion who will deliver Homeworld from his tyrant, Commander Arcturus Ran. Yes, the son of the first martyrs to die for openly defying Baron Karza. Encouraged by this revelation, Prince Argon dons the sacred armor of Dalin Ran and announces the beginning of the revolution, naming himself Force Commander. See to your weapons and steal your hearts for battle. Then we get a very brief scene, under half a page, which takes place somewhere in space. Roy Coffin asks a time traveler what he must do to become Earth's champion, even though he doubts his ability. I'm just an ex-astronaut gone to seed. But the glowing figure tells him to relax. Trust me. Close your eyes and dream. Back at Cape Canaveral, Biotron, Bug, and Microtron aboard the Endeavor attack the robots, but they cannot resist the mighty power of Karza. Croyer tries a frontal assault and gets slammed to the pavement. Ran and Princess Marionette, hit by Karza's eye beams, also fall. Ran warns Mari to retreat. But that's not going to happen anytime soon. I'm not giving up the man I love without a fight. He stutters. The, the man you love? The battle seems to be over when a glow rises from the Prometheus pit. A blue, white, and sparkling hero bursts forth and drives Karza into the ground. By the body banks! Who? Captain Universe. That's who. Ray Coffin has become the champion of the Enigma Force, and the time traveler has given him the power of Captain Universe. Whatever those things are. Traveling through the Prometheus pit, he has reached Earth to confront Karza. 
Call me an avenging angel, Baron. Come to safeguard Earth. Steve recognizes the voice of the cosmically costumed hero, his father. The confrontation is incredible. The might of Karza, stolen from all over the microverse, against the power of Captain Universe, symbol of all the resistance to Karza. They trade punches, energy blasts, and verbal jabs without much visible effect. No one seems able to win. But we do get an awesome full page of the two titans going at it. I'm calling a halt to your insane dreams of conquest, Karza. The Enigma Force has made a tactical error in choosing you to combat me, Captain, for I see its power, and I fear it no longer. The Micronauts are ignored as the two big bruisers clash, so they dash back to their ship, the Endeavor. A Croyer suggests that they add the power of their ship to that of Captain Universe, but Commander Rand disagrees. He finds that Mari is hurt, and he's frustrated. We haven't scored a single decisive victory. All we've done is stay alive. It's not enough, Uncroyer. We'll never win so long as we fight here, on an alien battleground, where Karza's power keeps increasing geometrically with his size. You have a plan then, Commander? I have part of a plan. How much? About 12% of a plan? No, he actually has 100% of a plan. And while he's getting it underway, we return to the big battle. Captain Universe senses the presence of his son. I'd better finish Karza before my boy gets hurt. Baron Karza does not go much for family, though. Your weakness is your lack of focus, hero. Instead of concentrating on our battle, your concern is spread to those with whom you have meaningless emotional attachments. Ran tells Biotron to get their rust bucket off the ground. His plan is to return to the Microverse through the pit. So, either the Micronauts will seal the pit and imprison Karza on Earth without access to his body banks for his army, or Karza will be forced to follow him back home and lose the incredible power granted by his human size. Worried, Karza flees from the battle and uses the Prometheus pit just after the Micronaut Starcraft does the same. Ran is not worried, though. Let him. We'll phase back to the Microverse light years apart. The battle on Earth is over. The Prometheus Pit is sealed. The power of the Enigma Force leaves Ray Coffin, who can once again hug his son Steve and promise to never leave him again. He's learned the importance of family and of love. And the confrontation between Karza and the Micronauts, that will be continued back in the Microverse. Are you tired of being tired? Sick of being sick? Fed up with being a fatty, fat, fatty? I know I am. Good news! Popmockers is here for you. We're a low-calorie, non-GMO, constantly monitoring our carbon footprint, podcast alternative for today's smart, well-educated, non-knuckle-dragging listener. Gluten-free, too! Okay, no, we're not anything like that. But if you like having funny things happen in your ear... You're gonna need to rephrase. If you like laughing... Check out popmockers.com. Hey, kids. Do you like comics? Uh-huh. Do you like Iron Man comics? Uh-huh. Do you want to learn more about Iron Man's downward spiral from alcoholism, fear of commitment, and feelings of inferiority, leading the egomaniac into a life of misery? Uh, what? 
Then listen to the Invincible Ironcast Classics Edition and see Tony Stark go from genius billionaire playboy philanthropist to genius billionaire playboy philanthropist with awesome weaponized armor. Relive classic stories like Demon in a Bottle, Armor Wars, Doom Quest, and more. Hosted by me, Mike Staley. So how about it, kids? Do you want to listen to the Invincible Iron Cast? Uh-huh. Well, too bad. You need to do your homework. Uh-huh. The Invincible Iron Cast Classics Edition. On iTunes or at invincibleironcast.podbean.com. And we're back. When last we covered the Micronauts back in episode 24... That issue ended with the cliffhanger of Baron Karza climbing full-size from the Prometheus pit. We are given no hint here as to how much time has passed, and that's probably a good authorial choice. If we had a specific time given, hours, days, or weeks, that would raise questions and potential plot holes. But this one starts so action-packed and fast-paced that there is no time for questions. And let me tell you, The dramatic splash page that opens the issue has everything you'd want. There are explosions, there's gunfire everywhere, the story's title, Earth Wars, is crammed into the corner. Because there's so much action on the page, there's nowhere else to put it. I mentioned the clip show aspect of the story, the multiple flashbacks. This is issue 8, remember? There are specific editor's notes that reference issues 1, 2, four, six, and seven. Five of the prior seven issues are specifically referenced, but at least the last of those footnotes occurs on page eight, so the last nine or ten pages are free of that distraction and really just give us nothing but action-packed action. And I guess it makes sense that NASA has some Marines stationed there or members of another branch, but it was the NASA helmets that I thought were quite inaccurate, but I put that off to simplifying the storytelling. There's enough exposition and verbiage in these Bill Mantlo stories already, and that's that's not a bad thing. Taking a little extra space to explain who these military guys were specifically, probably not worth it. Just give them NASA helmets and move on to the fighty-fighty stuff. The father-son stuff has been at the forefront in prior issues of Micronauts, but it's, it's really intense here, which is important as this is the culmination of that part of the story. And at some point in our lives, we all imagined or daydreamed or believed that our dad had superpowers, or if we had good childhoods, that our dad really was a hero of some kind. So giving that uh, childhood fantasy a reality for half a comic book was a really good idea. That cataclysmic battle between Captain Universe and the growing larger all the time Baron Karza was great. The highlight was the splash page of the two delivering consequences to each other, mano a mano. That page has lots of colors in the background as well, yellows and reds and greens, a real nice composition. And while I'm on the art, I did learn one interesting thing poking around the internets about this issue. It seems that there was some level of fan outcry regarding Michael Golden's work, that maybe it was too simple and cartoonish. And that explains, I think, the rotating cast of inkers that appeared in Micronauts, who were all supposedly coached 
to help Golden's art look less cartoony and more Kirby-ish. Whether that was happening this early in the run, I don't know, but I thought the combo of Bob McCloud over Golden for this issue worked uh, very well. Back to the writing of the story. There's a nice mix of storylines wrapping up, specifically the Coffins story, the father and son stuff. But we also have unanswered questions like the time traveler. I've only read issues six through eight, and even in the flashbacks here, I don't have a great feel for who or what that time traveler is or what role he has in the Micronauts backstory. And this budding romance between Commander Ran and Mari and the return to the Microverse, those are definitely plot threads that I imagine are are picked up and carried forward in future issues. This is a nice combination of a self-contained issue that both told a great story in and of itself, bringing a nice resolution to the one storyline, but also serving as a springboard into the next uh, story arc. There are a couple of great new ads in the issue I wanted to mention, or at least ones I don't remember, from uh, prior issues of the Micronauts, or other issues from this time frame. So I'm going to spend just a a few minutes on those. The inside front cover is selling a range of Battlestar Galactica t-shirts, only $4.99 each, by the way. Or you can buy a giant sailplane for $3.99, and a Whopper's wrapper. Or you can read The Continuing Adventures of Grit Boy. There is, appropriately enough, a full-color Micronauts ad selling alien creatures with brains that glow in the dark. The center spread of the comic is a full-color ad with really big letters advertising a free Super Shot vet. These are those cards with the retractable power cord that you pull, 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 and then they they speed off. Really fun toys, actually. Uh, To get the promised uh, free Corvette, you actually have to have two proof of purchases. So it's really more like buy two, get one free. There's a pretty fun Marvel house ad featuring a chorus line shot of Daredevil, Tarzan, Spidey, some Defenders, Hulk, all drawn by Fred Hembeck. It's a great image. And the back page is an ad for Star Trek The Motion Picture. Another really nice poster-style shot. But, oh, the humanity. There is a hostess ad. But it features a cartoon baseball player knocking a Twinkie and a cupcake for a home run. They're pushing the baseball cards on the back of the box, which I collected. But without a comic book character adventure story, it's just not what I want out of a hostess ad at this point in my life. The last time I looked at a book from this era, I mentioned the black and white full page Kryptonite Rocks ad and thought it was odd that a DC property would have such a prime ad location in a Marvel book. Well, this book turns that scenario up to 11. In addition to that same ad, the inside back cover, meaning slick paper and color, I assume much more expensive real estate, is an ad for Corgi brand cars, telling us, shh, don't let Lois Lane find out you're a friend of Superman, and offering us five branded vehicles, the Delhi Planet delivery van, 
the planet's flying newsroom helicopter, a city of Metropolis police car, a dark van with a Superman logo on the side, and a futuristic sort of Superman mobile. Now, those last two were kind of a stretch, but... I mean, Stan Lee must not have known about this, right? That's the only way they'd accept these two DC ads. The ads for the Micronaut toys, we call that corporate synergy in my management classes. But an ad for the competitor? Am I missing something here? I just don't expect to see ads for upcoming NBC shows. I don't know, when I'm watching Fox. I mean, it it always comes down to a case of dollar dollar bills, yo. I mean, money is money, I guess, in the advertising world, but I'm still confused by these ads. But the verdict on Micronauts 8. Wow, they just don't make comics like this anymore. Action-packed, fight scenes, character moments, budding romance, a resolution of a father-son storyline worth every penny, all 25 of them. An official quarter-bin steal. That wraps up my coverage of Micronauts number 8, bringing episode 37 of the Quarterbin podcast to a close. In episode 38, we'll be starting to cover another prestige format series. This one, a four-issue mini. And yes, we will be doing all four issues in the next dozen episodes or so. But next episode, it's book one of Shadow, Song of the Dragon. From DC Comics, written by one of my favorites, Mike Grell, cover dated January 1992. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor.